on your paper Bibles or phone Bibles, if you like, Ephesians chapter 2. We're not going to be looking at a single passage, but a bunch of passages across the Bible. But Ephesians 2 is what we'll read from as we look at um, the topic of identity and particularly the, the aspect of identity, which is sinner, to be sinful. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings and sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're looking at this uh, series, this semester, um, identity. Just getting my phone on silent. Um, who am I? What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be true to who I am and to live out who I am? What does it mean for you to be you and for me to really know you and connect with you as you really are? It's a big question and it's not an easy question. These things shift and change. Uh, sometimes we even come to a point where we say, you know what, um, you're not who I thought you were. And that can be a really exciting Mr. Darcy kind of moment. You're nicer than I thought you were. Um, or it can be a shocking, terrible moment. Um, you're worse than I thought you were. And you know what? The same thing can happen for us. I'm not who I thought I was. And you actually might come to terms with the fact that, hang on, I'm not who I thought I was. Um, maybe in a good way. Wow, I'm more. I'm the ugly duckling becoming a beautiful swan. Um, uh, but maybe worse. So it's a tricky question, and it's a question we all have, I think, in various ways. And I th often people who comment on society, sociologists and social commentators, observe how the fluidity in society, because you can travel anywhere and, and change jobs and then travel on the internet in a whole other way and change identity as you present yourselves through social media and so on, that that enhances that because we're not just stuck in a village, stuck in a, um, a family pattern and community and, and, and the job of your parents becomes your job. Because of that, we've lost that, um, because we can now move and change and be who we want and then travel on the information superhighway and be whoever we want out there in the, the web. That actually is a wonderful thing in terms of freedom, but it's also a strangely anxiety-inducing thing because you could go anywhere, do anything, be anything, then well, what are you then? Is there anything at the centre of you? Is there anything stable at all? Or are you just kind of goo that takes different forms? So it's a question that's both an exciting question, but also an anxiety-inducing question, to the point even where someone might think, what if I get myself wrong? What if I don't become my best me? What then? It's an interesting question. And so this semester we're looking at this theme of identity. Across our four citywide gatherings, when we meet in the the Trinity Centre through here. We're going to look at bigger themes. Biology we looked at in February. Um, ethnicity we'll look at at the end of March. Self-esteem we'll think about at the end of April. So they're more kind of themes. 
um, broader, perhaps you could say, cultural or anthropological themes. <laughs> In these mornings, we're going to look at Bible themes, some of the big uh, teachings of theological anthropology, what the Bible says about what it means to be human. The image of God, we thought about um, at the very start of March, and now sinner, so the, the tainted image of God, the distorted image of God. And, and, and these things, as the Bible tells us about ourselves and tells us about the history of the world, God's history and our history, um, it helps form, if you like, the centre, the non-gooey centre <laughs> um, of who we are, around which there might be shifting and changing of our circumstances and preferences, but there's a, there's a centre that interprets it and grounds it. And I guess that's maybe a helpful way to think about it. What helps me interpret all the bits and pieces of my life and what grounds all the bits and pieces in my life, even if I might uh, change a whole lot of ways and my circumstances might change in a whole lot of ways. And even though each of us around these tables are different from one another in all sorts of ways, is there something that's central uh, to who we all are, um, that connects us all, that gives us some certainty in the middle of it all, um, and that makes sense of it all? That's what we're looking at. So sinner this morning, a dark topic, but an important one, because to have good news, um, you've got to first of all face reality. Um, I mean, that's true with a bad diagnosis medically. In order to have good news about a cure, you've got to first have an accurate diagnosis of the problem. Um, in the same way, all of us know there are hard things in life. Why? What's the reason for the hard things? As we understand the unpleasant hard things, the exciting thing is we can then discover the very pleasant solution, the good things that come out of that. Yeah? But even more simply, uh, even if we're not talking solutions, there is a sense in which to have a proper understanding, to use the medical example again, if you have a diagnosis that's not easily curable, to at least understand the parameters and the risk factors and the challenges of a diagnosis will help you uh, live life aware of those challenges. You know, even, even prior to a cure, you'll avoid certain things and manage things and, and live with, within the, the boundaries of that. And, and in the same way, I think, to understand the things the Bible says about what's wrong with human nature now actually helps us, I don't know, guard ourselves in our relationships and also, um, what's the right word, um, not believe our own hype about ourselves as well. So not just guard ourselves in the risk of other people with their flaws, but also um, not, be, not think too much of myself and be, um, be too overconfident, but be aware of my own flaws, yeah? So that's what we're looking at today. First of all, what is sin then? Sinner. The Bible says we're sinners. What is it to be a sinner? What is sin? I think sin is a, it's a hard word. It's a technical word in the Bible. Um, but I think it means a lot of different things in connotations when it gets said in the wider community. If someone talks about being called a sinner, in some kind of slam poetry delivery or in some kind of political debate. The word generally carries a sort of a hate word feeling to it. You pull out the sinner word when you want to kind of hit someone over the head as saying you're especially undesirable in some way. You've called me a sinner. I'm sinful. It, it has a spikes on it as a word. Sometimes that can happen with Christian conversation um, when uh, Christians disagree, if you want to escalate the disagreement to a new level, 
then you say, oh, I don't just think it's wrong, I think it's sinful. I don't just disagree with you, I think what you think is sinful. And so that can escalate the conversation. It seems to have this extra weight to it. Like, a bit like abomination, perhaps. Like, we don't use these words in everyday conversation outside of a slightly religious prickliness <laughs> is the way I think it can feel, unfortunately, in a wider society. Um, and so we've got to kind of put that to one side a little and then go, what is the... When the Bible in the Hebrew language and the ancient Greek language used words in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek that then older English chose to translate using English words sin, for example, um, sinful, uh, what's the meaning there, leaving aside the way it's been used in the, whatever, the last few decades or centuries or whatever? Well, the word sin is, um, is a word that captures the idea of rebellion. Um, it's a, uh, the, the themes around the word is the idea of turning away from God as the creator and the Lord. It's missing what he calls us to, it's ignoring what he says, it's rejecting his ways. It's that collection of ideas, yeah? So sin is not going God's way, not honouring God, giving thanks to God, worshipping God, um, meeting his mark, um, being in harmony with him. It's breaking harmony, it's rebellion, it's betrayal, it's defiance, it's... Uh, it, it, images the Bible can use are kind of concepts like uh, betrayal, and being tra traitorous, abandonment, refusal. Often the idea of adultery, and so the actual unfaithfulness of the most uh, intimate of bonds is an image used to describe sin as well. Um, other times just stubbornness of a defiant and uncompliant um, animal, you know, beast of burden, you know, an animal that um, throws off its rider. Human beings are sinful in that sense. They've rejected God, turned from him, distorted his ways, rebelled against him. Um, it's such a shock to think about that when we think of what we considered last breakfast sessions, that humans are created in the image of God, a little lower than the angels but crowned with glory and honour, formed to represent God's rule over the world and bring God's blessing to the world, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, this glorious thing. <coughs> and it's within that context, context that human beings are sinful. It's in the context of being made good and glorious that human beings uh, then distort this to become evil and shameful. Genesis chapter 3 then comes after Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 3, um, as we've seen human beings created in God's image, uh, made to bring blessing to the world, standing before one another and before God with no shame, suddenly we then have the entrance of a tempter. Uh, to the human race. Genesis chapter 3, a serpent more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you mustn't touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to them. 
where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Leaving aside the descriptions of serpents and fruit, what's the underlying theological meaning of the story? What's the guts of this story here? It is human beings, through this tempting questions, coming to a point of saying, I won't listen to God, I'll listen to something else. I won't pursue God's good way for blessing and life and purpose. I'll actually instead, rather than being in the image of God, like God, I'll be like God by taking the place of God and know good and evil separate from God. Yeah? Not hear good and evil from God and so be his good image in the world, but rather decide, know in that sense, know it for myself apart from God and so be like God myself. Yeah? The, the, the whole way the temptation is set up is, oh, God doesn't want what's good for you. God's not telling you the full truth. God doesn't want you to take his place and know good and evil apart from him. And so the temptation becomes, well, if, if I can have this pleasure and this wisdom and this knowledge, I should have it. And then it brings with it this awareness suddenly of, of shame and vulnerability before God. A relationship of harmony and goodness now is broken and is replaced by guilt and alienation. Bible passage I began with describes then the state of humanity that comes um, as human beings take this step to say no to their creator. Human beings are dead in their transgressions and sins. Transgression carries the idea of rule breaking in their trespassing, their rule breaking, their sin. We used to live when we followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature, following his desires and thoughts, like the rest were by nature objects of wrath. Dead now, in a whole twisted up way of life, separate from God, out of relationship with God. As Ephesians 2 says a little bit further on, uh, it's being um, uh, separate from God, without God and without hope in the world. Ephesians 2, verse 12. Romans chapter 1 retells the story of Genesis, um, saying that human beings suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans 1.18. Since, Romans 1.19, what may be known about God is plain to them because God had made it plain to them since the creation of the world. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse... For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, humans became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Instead of being the image of God, in harmony with God, human beings ignore God and make up their own little gods to worship. It's the irony in the end. We don't end up being gods. We end up just worshipping other things other than the real God. Now, it's got to be said, from the Bible's point of view, sin is an inevitability. I think the way we think of freedom, because our thinking of freedom assumes a world where human beings are sinful, we go, on a long enough timeline, everyone ends up making a, doing the wrong thing. Long, you get the best person in the world, on a long enough timeline, they'll mess up and they'll do the wrong thing. From the Bible's point of view, human beings were made good to be in harmony with God, that that was right, that was good, that, was, that had the potential to continue. 
that it wasn't a sense in which God said, oh, that was bound to happen. <laughs> but rather, it's a, it's a terrible thing. It's an unnecessary, unthinkable, awful thing that human beings could turn from what is good and right and true. That I think our understanding of freedom that assumes human beings are already morally flawed goes, ah, oh, well, it was bound to happen. God should have said it coming. Instead, what we ought to think from a theological point of view is how unthinkable, how there's a, almost a shocking, inexplicable mystery of the entry of sin into a good world. It's unprovoked, unjustifiable, unimaginable, and yet it happened. That, that sin should never be assumed as this kind of necessary, inevitable part of human nature fundamentally. No, it's a tragic and unnecessary thing that human beings walked into when they ought not have. Sin is this nothing, this twisted thing that distorts what is good and right. So what is sin? It's turning away from God, saying no to God. It's rebellion. It's uh, betrayal. It's godlessness, if you like. Not being in harmonious relationship and obedience to God. To say someone is a sinner is to state a reality about their spiritual relationship to God. That's what it's to say. It's not a hate word for an argument on a social media thread um, or a theological discussion, but it's fundamentally saying, stating the reality of the human, human beings' alienation from God. And you know what? Second point, who is sinful? All of us are. All of us are. So to say someone who's a sinner isn't really to add something unique to a conversation, but it's to express something that you share in common with that person. You're a sinner, and guess what I am too? We all are. It's part of human equality. Every human being, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, is a sinner. It's not a hate word for atheists or violent Muslims or poor people or something. We all are. The religious leader, the prophet, the wise man, the educated, as much as the religious dictator and the warmonger and the pervert and so on. Human beings are all sinful because human beings share the common human nature. All human beings, since the first human beings that we just read about who rejected God, have been born into that same sinful state. You're not an individual entirely separate from your context. Well, we know that, right? You're born into families and cultures. You know that. Well, that's true on the biggest level of the human race. You're born into being human. Yes, you're an individual, but you're an individual of a particular kind, a human individual, from your family, from your culture, but also from your human race. And the human race has rejected God and turned from him, and we inherit that trajectory, yeah? A little bit like whatever our family or our country does. We get born into that. We didn't do it, but we share in the people who did do it. And so we share in that communal identity, history and responsibility. More still, just as you inherit your parents' biological traits, genes and other kinds of tendencies, um, so also on this spiritual level. We inherit the spiritual um, nature of our forebears. In Romans chapter five, oh, sorry, Genesis chapter five, we get an echo of the creation of human beings in God's image, with a little twist. With all that we've seen of the rebellion of humanity, it's interesting that what we get told 
in Genesis chapter 5 is that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female. He blessed them. And when they were created, they were called man. And when Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So we get this introduction then to human beings, yes, continuing to be in God's image by extension, but also now in God's image, distorted and broken like Adam. And those verses introduce a chapter that lists death as one of the common features now of the human race. We die now for we have rejected God now. Psalm 51, as David prays repentance um, for, for his great evil that's not justifiable or explainable or uh, ought not have been inevitable, but yet he did. He declares, surely I was sinful at birth Psalm 51, verse 5. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The human race is now spoiled in our nature, in our being. All of us are. It's not saying something particular about particular individuals in society. That, oh, oh that kind of person, they're broken and sinful, but, but not you or I. No, it's saying all the human race have this distortion in us. Yeah, It's not something to shame a particular category of person but it's something that's true of all people. We've inherited our biology, we've inherited our cultural context, we've inherited also our spiritual state, sometimes referred to as original sin. The original sin of Adam and Eve leads then to the human inheritance of this sinful nature and orientation. More though, it includes also the inheriting of, you could say, original guilt that we share from conception, from birth, from the beginning of our lives, a sharing in the guilt of the human race as a whole. Again, just like you're born into a country, a people, a family, you inherit its, its past. You're benefiting from the sins of the past as you're born. I mean, we're so aware of this in Australia, aren't we? We've inherited... Uh, white presence in Australia with all the history of death um, and taking land where others were living, yeah? And all our perks kind of sit on the back of that, don't they? Yeah? Um, and so it's something that I consciously, as I grow up, need to say, need to make a decision of whether I go, oh, that's fine, or actually that's something I want to kind of repent of, distance myself of personally. So also, human beings inherit original guilt. If we had time, we could look at Romans 5 where... We, that's uh, spoken about um, in terms of uh, observe how all human beings die, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. Where does that come from? Not every human being has received a, a command from God that they rejected, so yet, but yet that's what, what death is for human beings. Death is a punishment for rebellion against God. How does that work? Well, we've all been born of Adam who did reject the command of God. We've all ride the way. We're, we all sin in Adam. We all die in Adam. And so then we continue to sin and die in our own lives. And that means it's universal. All of us are sinful. All of us are not right with God. All of us inherit a sinful nature that distorts our thoughts and desires in many ways. All of us share this guilt before God. Romans chapter 3 describes it this way. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? 
Not at all, Romans 3 verse 9. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Human race as a whole are guilty and, ex and, and inherit this sinful nature and express it in where we walk. Our feet shed blood, bring strife. How we look, we don't look as those who see God with worship and honour, uh, but we look with pride often and judgmentalism. How we speak, so often to lie or to hurt or to cut down or to boast. Jesus assumes that often in his teaching he says, it says things like, uh, God's a good father, he'll give good gifts. Think about your earthly fathers. Even though earthly fathers are evil, they still give good gifts to their kids. Oh, Jesus would just speak in these terms of acknowledging all human beings, even the good ones, are evil. That's why, to jump ahead to the end of the sermon, we need to be justified by faith alone. Because our good deeds cannot earn God's favour. Um, we need God to give his favour to us. So this means there's a twofold equality between you and everyone around you here in the room, everyone around you here in the city, in the world, even the worst, even the best. Twofold equality. All of us made in God's image, precious, treasured, uh, loved, full of dignity. All of us inherited the rebellion against God and so carry with us a shame, a guilt, an evil. There's no space for ultimate division. We share a humble brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity in our plight. What is sin we've looked at? Who is sinful? Thirdly, how sinful are we? Well, it's true to say that not every human being is as evil in all of their thoughts and words and life as they could possibly be. I said that Jesus talks about human fathers as being evil, but giving good gifts. Well, there you have it. Not every human father gives only snakes and scorpions to their kids, but many human parents give many good things to their children, and that's a wonderful thing, yeah? Jesus can speak about how tax collectors and Pharisees in Matthew 5 love those who love them. There's, there's love and community possible amongst human beings. Throughout Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul can speak about uh, Jews who do not believe in Jesus as being zealous for God, even if their zeal isn't based on the true knowledge of the gospel. That there's many senses in which human beings manifest still kindness and wisdom and love and gentleness and mercy and compassion. We see it all the time, yeah? Whenever there's a time when you have your renewed faith in humanity in some way or another, you see that, that humans aren't as sinful as they could possibly be in every sense. However, theologians have noticed in the Bible what they've summarised as total depravity. <laughs> Again, depravity is one of those words, isn't it? When do you use that word? But the idea is to say not that we're as sinful as we could possibly be in everything we do and say and think, it's not so much talking about the intensity of sin or evil as the pervasiveness of sin and evil. Does that make sense? It's not intensely depraved, evil, guilty, but bad, but it's 
uh, pervasively in every aspect. So in my thinking even, I can so quickly forget facts that aren't convenient and twist facts to suit me. So even my intellect can be twisted and become evil. Even my intellect, isn't that interesting? It's interesting for so many of us here being uni students to bear that in mind, that even amongst the academy, even amongst the most intelligent, one would hope, the scientists and so I mean, it's easy when you look into a previous era, isn't it? You look back 100 years at the things that people said science proved, and you kind of smirk a bit and go, yeah, that's, that's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> you found what you wanted to find that told you, again, to use the example of Australia, there was uh, a whole stream of people who, who took uh, the kind of Darwinian theory as a, as a kind of a licence to take Australia from the Indigenous Australians who were doomed in the face of the more advanced race, for example. What a convenient intellectual conclusion to reach. Yeah? Our intellect, um, our, even our um, desires can then become twisted. So what we want is not always good. Um, it isn't even what we think we thought we wanted. How often do we say that? I, I went for this and then it wasn't what I wanted. We end up saying, yeah, our desires are confused and twisted and, and distorted in many sorts of ways. How, how often, there's a famous saying by a, an author, Gore Vidal, I think it is, who said, um, every time my friend succeeds, a little part of me dies. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? That, that I have that, that envy that consumes me so strongly. Yeah? Well, that desire to, to, yeah. Our desires, our mind, our spiritual life, even our experience of our, you know, our desires and our mind so overlaps with our physical experience, doesn't it? We're in physical beings. And so often, again, we, our thoughts almost are led by a grumpiness that comes from our, our anger, our moodiness, or our sleeplessness. And, and so even our, our physical natures trip us up and send us off in these spins. Yeah? So my whole self is touched by sin, not just when I do something wrong or say something wrong, but my very experience of life is, is oriented to sinfulness. Yeah? Even before a word is spoken or a deed is done. There's a really influential and very, very helpful um, secular counselling psychology book, not written by a psychologist, but a very uh, kind of expresses... Um, uh, modern psychological theory called The Happiness Trap. I found it a helpful book to read. I don't know if others here have, have heard of or read The Happiness Trap. Um, very helpful book in lots and lots of ways. But um, like in, I guess, anything, your underlying philosophy will come through, you know? The way you talk about parenting or <laughs> counselling or politics or whatever, at various points will show an underlying philosophy of life. And that's true of the happiness trap. And so when a Christian reads that and benefits from it, they need to read it but then bring their Christianity into it. Because, uh, at least at my reading, the happiness trap demonstrates instead a kind of maybe a more sort of Buddhist view of human nature. Listen to this quote anyway. It's an interesting quote in terms of what it says about humanity. Your observing self can't be judged as good or bad, right or wrong, because all it does is observe. If you do the wrong thing or a bad thing, the observing self is not in any way responsible. It merely notices what you've done and helps you make you aware of it, thereby enabling you to learn from it. 
Moreover, the observing self will never judge you because judgments are thoughts and the observing self cannot think. The observing self sees things as they are without judging, criticising or doing any of the other thinking processes that sets us up for struggle with reality. Therefore, it gives acceptance in its truest, purest form. Isn't that interesting? What's fundamental to you in one sense then is this observing self that has no moral judgment about it all, but merely watches. And that somehow if you can just adopt the standpoint of this observing self, then all else will fall into place and you'll be okay. Now, in the context of the book, there's a very helpful point to be had here, which is to disentangle ourselves from unhealthy overthinking. That's a very helpful observation. And that's where modern counselling and psychology, like the happiness trap, or ancient psychology, like some of the teachings of Buddhism, it can be enormously helpful. Where you go, you know what? I, I don't do myself any favours by obsessing and going round in circles about what I've done and why I've done it and what I'm doing now and how I can stop it and trying to control with my active thinking self. It often doesn't make me any better. It just makes me tangled in a mess, makes me miserable, and I still end up doing bad things. So to stop and get some distance and to observe can be a really helpful thing. Sometimes just to go, huh, I'm, I'm in a mess right now and I'm feeling rubbish about it right now. Let's just, just sit outside that and let that be for now. That's a, that, there's wisdom in that. I'd say, in a sense, a God's eye view helps you with that. You step outside and observe from God's point of view. However, as a Christian does that, with a God's eye view, God certainly does both love me and accept me and judge me and critique me. Both. Yeah? And so I, I, I need to absorb these things in a slightly different framework, you see. Because all of me is tangled up in rebellion against God. And I need more than simply observing acceptance. I need truth and I need forgiveness. And I need a different way. The Bible says on our own we can't please God. In fact, we won't please God. We need God to come and seek us. We won't find God if we keep trying on our own, being good enough on our own, meaning better next time turning around and turning over a new leaf. We won't find God that way. We won't make peace with God that way. We won't fix the past that way. Even if from now on you were perfect. What, what to do with the past? Fundamentally, the Bible says, there is a, a deep spiritual sense in which we never will want to turn back to God. That even as we long for something more, Romans chapter 8 says the sinful nature does not live in accordance with, the, sinful, uh, with uh, the spirit, nor can it do so. This is Romans chapter 8 verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But God seeks us. God finds us. God forgives us. God gives us his righteousness in Christ. His forgiveness in Christ's death for our guilt. His righteousness in Christ's perfection as we are in him. And then leads us in a new way by his spirit to put to death the old way and live in the new way.
more of that in the coming weeks. We're going to look at being in Christ. We're going to look at uh, the ultimate hope of being made new, body, soul and spirit in the glorified resurrection. It's an awesome relief. God hasn't given up on you. God sees and observes you, judges you in truth, but accepts you in mercy and gives Christ to forgive you, to make you new, to restore God's image in perfection, uh, to glorify God's image in a whole new level in the resurrection. But for now, some final thoughts on how this affects our identity as we close. What does it mean to have sinner as one of the things that grounds and interprets my identity? Well, firstly, as I've stressed at multiple points, it doesn't mean that I hate myself. The technical word from the Greek is misanthropy, um, misanthropic, to hate people. It's not that I hate people, see people as a virus or as terrible, wicked bugs or something. As I said last week, that quote from um, Henri Blocher, although human beings act like dogs or worse than dogs, we're not dogs. <laughs> um, I think sometimes the colourful descriptions of the shame and wrong of sin can end up conveying that, that somehow it's Christian to have a fundamental disgust for our humanity or something. No, that's not quite right. No, no, it's an awareness of guilt, yes, and the pervasiveness of wrong, yes, that drives us to repentance and forgiveness and reformation, not this sort of self-disgust, misanthropy. Secondly, what does it mean for my sense of self? It does cause me to have a profound realism and uh, about who I am and who you are, scepticism about myself and even my most noblest intentions and thoughts, and sets my expectations kind of low. I should expect even the person I am so deeply in love with um, to have a dark side. I can't see because I'm so in love with them. You kind of become a bit of an idiot when you're in love. Um, and that's nice, but be warned. There's a dark side to everyone else and to you, even when you're so deeply in love and are so just high on the love drug. Uh, you will still do bad things. Even if it's not love of love, but love of learning. You should have a sceptical view of the wisest and the smartest. A sceptical view of yourself as you add more letters to the end of your name. Yeah. And of institutions, how much more? Of church as an institution? Of society as an institution? Of government agencies? Of the scientific community? of indigenous people's tribal cultures. Whatever you like, you will find evil there and disappointment and abuse there across the board in the progressive arts and communities, in the indigenous uh, communities or the, the simple living communities, in the established institutions, you will find disappointment and evil. In you, in the church, in the uni fellowship. Expect it. Get ready for it. You will be hurt more in life if these things take you by surprise. And your faith will be more shaken by them in life, in God, in others, if they take you by surprise. 
It also highlights ultimately and finally here human need. I think we need justice. We need truth to be named and evil to be exposed and come into the light. We need justice. We do need it. Even if it's a bad news for me, it's better to come into the light. We need self-control. Ways that help me guard against the worst things of human, human nature and institutions that guard against the worst things of human liberty and power. And we need forgiveness. Not just acceptance, but forgiveness, reconciliation, mercy. Ultimately, we need to be made new. That often mocked but truly wonderful teaching in the Bible of being born again. As if I never sinned. As if all the wrong and the shame was dealt with because in God's eyes, he can do that. He can forgive and make new in a way that we never can. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to think about dark things that point us towards light things. And please shape our minds and our lives by the truths of your word and may they draw us closer to you and your gospel of forgiveness and new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.